0: KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org It is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for a Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending Nice and tidy It's a rule I learned in school Get your money Happy Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. The shadows out of sight. And this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is June the 25th, 2013. Did you hear that last show? I love it. Still worried about. Who's a boy and who's a girl? I love those Steven Pinker books on human nature. It's a whole bunch of books on human nature. Actually, I go back to my my mother's spin on those things. Uh, My mother was born in 1902. And she used to say, of course, snakes and snails and puppy dog tails, that's what little boys are made of, sugar and spice and everything nice, and that's what little girls are made of. One cliche after another, yes. Human nature, she would say, that is what we are put on this earth to rise above. I had two little boys, and yes, yes, they definitely went for the vroom, vroom toys uh, anything that made noise, uh, I think, what is it, my favorite, my favorite anecdote about boys and girls, uh, males and females, is the old one, I've forgotten who came up with this, uh, some anthropologist, I think, he said, well, women learn from the plants, and men Males learn from the animals, which is why women sit down and men stand up. <laughs> I mustn't laugh at my own jokes. A friend of mine called me on that the other day. She said it was <laughs> it was very uncool to laugh at my own jokes. Never mind. I don't want to forget today. I don't want to forget to tell you about something important. Uh, the uh, San Francisco Mime Troupe. Just coming here, I, I love the Mime Troop, you know, you can go to the park, and take your own little folding chair, if you're uh old like me, and you don't want to sit on the grass, Uh let's see, before I forget, let's see, you can go online, and get the details, it's sfmt, for San Francisco Mime Troop, dot org, sfmt, now, um, they're doing something else this time. It's called Community Forums. There's one this Thursday. Maybe I can get to that one. Uh, community Forums. Call up and get the details. Uh, now, the play, the show the Mime Troop is putting on, is called Oil and Water. It's two shorter plays called Crude Intentions and Deal with the Devil. Um, these are... Topically linked and musically interwoven. It says here that the live music begins thirty minutes before show times. Uh, okay, it's all about you know challenging the dangerous enemy. Well, the the uh, you know the corporations are uh, uh, are coming to get us, right? Uh, I think the corporations—they they remind me of the the. The medieval Christian church, right? You know, it's the only game in town, corporations. Anyway, never mind all that blathers. The uh, community forums go on into August. Most of them are at the Mime Troop studio, and they have speakers. The one this Thursday, the speaker is Cecile Pineda. I think that's the pronunciation, Cecile P. I, N, E, D, A. From seven to nine o'clock. Now, I, I know that I am acquainted with Cecile Panetta. I, I do remember, my mind is getting <laughs> very vague, but I, I do remember going to her home at some point. Uh, we were seeing off the late, great KPFA programmer, uh, Padre Geen McGillicuddy. Padre Gein left us to go to Ireland, and um, that, well, Padre Gein at least died in her homeland in Ireland, but anyway, I want to go and ask Cecile how uh, how things are going. Uh, once again, let me give you the phone number, in case you didn't hear what I said before about looking it up on the net, sfmt.org, San Francisco Mime Troop. In the 415 area code, there's a number, 285-1717. Once again, you can call the San Francisco Mine Troop to get the times for both the community forums and for all the shows. Uh, The shows run through September the 2nd. They begin the 4th of July and run through September the 2nd. And, you know... uh, the Mime Troop goes all over San Francisco, Palo Alto, Alameda, Ukiah, Mill Valley, Montclair, Oakland, Sacramento, Santa Cruz, Davis. Anyway, the phone number again is in the 415 area code 2851717. This one you can take all the kids. It's, uh, it's a freebie, although of course uh, donations uh yes they do pass the hat donations are welcome uh i hope i remember to give that phone number again today before i go home because that stuff is important boys and girls i think last week last week i started on my serious stuff you know i started on virginia wolf and uh Actually, it was the second time I hit Virginia Woolf. I could go on about Virginia Woolf all year long, but a serendipitous event here. I got in the mail today from Lilith Lynn Rogers a dialogue play between Virginia Woolf and Emily Dickinson. How about that for serendipitous? Uh, I have a little, uh, well, dialogue. It's a little play um, called Lifestyles of the Wise and Feminist. And, uh, I think maybe, maybe I can bring that in, at least in July sometime. It's, you know, it's one of those wonderful dialogues with all of the, well, not all, many of the feminist writers in history, uh, starting with Mary Wollstonecraft back at the end of the 18th century. And going all the way up to Pat Parker, all of those who have left us, Audre Lorde, uh, contemporary, yes, I like the best, I think, the Brontes. They <laughs> they're pretty uptight. Anyway, uh, I'll save that for next time. Today I want to hit on Virginia Woolf again, but uh, I, I sat down this week and tried to write a coherent, interesting review of the television series The Borgias. And yet I remembered how many people had told me that I'm not allowed to do uh T V on KPFA and I thought that's just not fair. Uh some of the best stuff going is on uh cable television, uh especially important for people like me who are older and who cannot really uh Spend our lives in the theater anymore. Of course, live theater is our first, uh, first responsibility. But the thing about the Borges, well, I guess Jeremy Irons is just splendido. And <laughs> I, I tried last night. Actually, what I tried to do this week was to zero in on all of the religiosity. Uh, in these shows, uh, not just the Borgias, but, oh, a Game of Thrones, I love that, in Game of Thrones, they're always saying, by the old gods and the new, and I thought, that's it, be inclusive, yes, uh, pan, yes, uh, interesting, uh, what I like about the Borgias is that they do play with history, it may provoke young people to go and look up, some of these people, uh, the Borgia starts in 1492, you remember Columbus, but anyway, we're in Rome and uh, the Jews have been expelled from Spain and uh, the Borgias were Spanish, so have all kinds of media material for the script. What I got a big kick out of is a minor character by the name of Niccolò Machiavelli, right? He wrote The Prince. You will remember Machiavelli uh, in the late 15th century. He was the man, actually. He's only trying to preserve Florence, his uh, hometown. He loves Florence. Uh, In one of these scenes... uh, with one of his scenes with Cesare Borgia. Uh, Cesare says that uh, he would like some more advice, more than just uh, advice about presentation. And Machiavelli says, <laughs> Presentation is everything. Reminds me of Julius Caesar and the other brilliant series about Rome when Mark Anthony tries to make fun of all the uh, political ceremony. Julius Caesar explains to him how politics is theater. Anyway, uh, the scene with Cesare Borgia and Machiavelli takes place at the French court. Machiavelli is telling Cesare to stick with the black apparel, you know, skip all the red velvets. Yes, he's so right, Uh, The Man in Black, I think that was Johnny Cash. Anyway, uh, this stuff, uh, I think it's, what is it, it's enough to tease me into hoping that coming episodes will give me more material about Machiavelli, Uh, (laughs) I, I looked up, some of the material in The Prince. And, of course, you remember, it's the famous guidebook for dictators. Uh, Machiavelli wrote about the ways in which political power can be gained, but also how it can uh, be kept. You know, uh, I remember, what is it, so many things that we can see now in Washington, D.C., particularly this business of setting one group against the other, don't you know? That's the way to seize power. Right. Anyway, uh, I was thinking, yes, there's a scene in the Borgias. The notorious cleric, Savonarola, later to be burned as a heretic, uh, he uh, is running around Florence making trouble, and Machiavelli... (laughs) is a little irritated about this and what savonarola has done is he's whipped up young boys they become his fanatic apostles something else we see around us today uh these little boys are running around spouting dogma and they are in the streets demanding of the citizens of florence that they cast aside their vanities Yes, throw your vanities in the bonfire. (laughs) Yes, all the luxuries, uh, the, what is it, sumptuary laws. Remember Julius Caesar's sumptuary laws? Okay. Anyway, we see them burning their paintings and books, the art, the fine clothes, even the jewels. All their ungodly goods. Uh, (laughs) These little boys. They bang on Machiavelli's front door, and uh, it's like he comes out, and it's like a trick-or-treat scene. The kids threaten to break his windows and generally cause trouble, and you think Machiavelli's going to fight, but then he says, oh, oh, well, wait, 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 wait a moment, and he goes back inside, shutting the door, and he returns with a huge stuffed owl. In a glass container. It's just the sort of thing that any true esthete would be more than happy to toss on a bonfire. He gives it to the little kids. Uh, actually, uh, that's the kind of thing that the writers do in the Borgias that actually gives me a kick. Uh, once or twice, I did think they used too many contemporary lines. uh uh let's see, at one point a woman is told, yes, that she wants to be uh, she wants to be a princess of hearts, queen of hearts, right. And oh best of all is when um uh, Lucrezia Borgia's young husband, Alfonso of Naples, uh, he looks at her brother Cesare and his wife Lucrezia, and he says, uh he says there's three people in this marriage, and I thought that's cheating. That's really, really a ripoff. Anyway, uh, as you can see, I am addicted to the Borgias. This season, as a bloody season, has just ended, and I'm ready to watch the whole thing again from the beginning. What a terrible waste of uh, <laughs> waste of time! I I did make a whole bunch of parallels, listed the parallels, you know, these suicide poisoners, like today's suicide bombers, one young man, um, uh, a young priest, or, uh, uh, well, he's not a priest yet, but he's perfectly willing to die, uh, you know, in order to rid Rome of the Borgia Pope, and he's willing to take the poison himself, Uh, interesting stuff, fascinating stuff, anyway, I'm not allowed, as I said, I'm not allowed to talk about television. So I have to jump into Virginia Woolf. But oh, before I do that, I must mention, uh, somebody called me up the other day and asked me what I thought about all this, uh, uh, what do we call it? Uh, uh, not Gestapo tactics, but all this business of uh, privacy and listening in on us as if that stuff were anything new. It's so old hat that all I can do is recommend an article called The Prism, Annals of Surveillance. It's written by Jill Lepore. She's good. L-E-P-O-R-E is her name. It's, uh, yes. Privacy in the Age of Publicity. It's in the June 24th issue of The New Yorker. Now, this just about, just about covers all this material, right? Secrecy is but another word for fear. Uh, Now, uh, the gist of it is that it may not yet be, um, what do you call that? Uh, It may not yet be uh, the Stasi here, uh, the KGB, but... Uh, you know, it it is it offers the possibilities. I, I don't know. Anyway, the president has promised to to <laughs> conduct another investigation. Yes, Congress is gonna conduct an investigation. So uh we look forward we look forward to that. Let's see what they can do about about it this time. Never mind. What I really care about is Virginia Wolf and this whole subject of, uh, what is it, the feminization of our culture. Now, I think it's happening, but of course, uh, I'm not. I'm not the woman in the street, uh, or maybe I am. Last week, I started off with Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. This was the feminist bible of my generation Virginia Woolf also wrote a nice little book called Three Guineas in which she suggested that wars might just be uh, what do you call that an escalation of fascism in the private home Uh, she wrote in Three Guineas as a woman I have no country that's it right Now, back before the Woman's Property Act in the 1880s in England, at any rate, uh, women could not own property of any kind. Virginia Woolf herself writes that she would rather have money than the vote. Now, she got some money, at least enough to have a room of her own. April 1909, right, my mother was seven, Virginia's Aunt Caroline Emilia Steffen died, left Virginia Woolf a legacy of 2,500 pounds. Okay, that's enough to live on the interest, apparently. It was this shred of security which allowed one of the greatest writers of the 19th and 20th centuries to compete with William Shakespeare. Or Edward Devere, depending on your point of view on that one. Anyway, in the essay, A Room of One's Own, Virginia Woolf paints a grim picture, yes, uh, of the fate of women. I love the way she she uses the word Oxbridge to be Oxford and Cambridge put together. Uh, What was it somebody said in a play, right, talking about a, a woman who's receiving enlightenment, it says, yes, she was attending a more than usually long lecture on the effects of a permanent income on thought. that stayed with me since I was a college girl. And I thought, yes. See, once you have a permanent income, you can put aside all bitterness and you can be uh, objective. That's what it is. uh, On the other hand... Virginia Woolf goes on at great length about the women who don't put aside their resentments and frustrations. They put them into their writing. And she says this spoils the writing. Makes the women shrill. Oh, dear. She says that Emily Bronte never did this. Jane Austen never did this. Shakespeare never did this. Okay. I don't know. I think that aesthetic distance is just... One more patriarchal plot. Just one more way the male stream literary establishment contrives to drive women out of the academy. I mean, it's their academy. Of course, Virginia Woolf knew. It was just that uh, she needed to go the men one better. She wanted to find a new aesthetic. She's always saying that... Poetry should have a mother as well as a father. She's looking for a new language. Uh, I don't know how you become one of the mothers of literature. Uh, most of the mothers fall in with the fathers and do things their way. Right, here's Virginia Woolf writing, she says. <laughs> All the older forms of literature were hardened and set by the time she became a writer. The novel alone was young enough to be soft in her hands. And she goes on trying, I guess trying, to explain why she writes novels. Uh, I am one who would be, well, who would have been so happy if she had written more criticism. Uh, What do you call that? Uh, If she had been more... More yang and less yin, but there it is. She thought that the novel was the place to find the truth. Never mind the facts. She was after the truth. Uh, Anyway, equal does not mean the same. Uh, Women no longer wish to write as men write. Think of Alice Walker's book, The Color Purple. Many English teachers are fussing about a book like The Color Purple, they ask, is that a novel or not? I think of all the editors who write to me saying, well, this is not a novel. You know, The Color Purple starts out as letters to God. Anyway, uh, define the novel, boys and girls. You can say that... uh, The color purple is poetic and that it has a riff on each page, yes. But how to market these things? Virginia Woolf writes that each succeeding generation of women carries the torch. Today, women are even using their pens to write about the love of woman for woman. Now, that was a thing that Virginia said had stopped the pen in her time now at the end of A Room of One's Own she does talk about uh, Chloe loving Olivia (laughs) it's very funny the way she puts it she says that uh, this will be the literature of the future she means of course lesbian literature Uh. anyway Virginia Woolf went on at great length measuring measuring the uh, what is it the Critics, the headmasters, she said they they always had a a measuring rod up their sleeve. Uh, She writes, to submit to the decrees of the measurers is the most servile of attitudes. So long as you write what you wish to write, that is all that matters. And whether it matters for ages or only for hours, nobody can say but to sacrifice a hair of the head of your vision, a shade of its color, in deference to some headmaster with a silver pot in his hand, or to some professor with a measuring rod up his sleeve. That is the most abject treachery. The sacrifice of wealth and chastity, which used to be said to be the greatest of human disasters, is a mere fleabite in comparison. Okay. Right, yes. I, I love what she says about, um, about the women writing in her time. Oh. She oh. writes, I thought of all the women's novels that lie scattered, like small pockmarked apples in an orchard, about the second-hand bookshops in London, It was the flaw in the center that had rotted them. She, the woman writer, had altered her values in deference to the opinion of others. I'm repeating that. I think I read it last week, but that's the biggie. That's the big one. Uh, Honesty is the work of a lifetime, and most of us, women writers, we really are at a loss sometimes... Uh, to know whether or not we have spoken our truth. We're so accustomed to looking at mainstream literature. Uh, you know how that goes. Jane Austen writes about the personal little things and Shakespeare writes about the great grand themes, Tolstoy and so forth. Uh, and so women try, try to measure up to the great male writers. Uh, can't be done. Uh, Anyway, uh, Virginia Woolf goes on about pessimism and optimism uh, hmm, and about women getting their anger out. Then she goes on to talk about the ways in which men express their anger in literature. Uh, I wanted to get down to Charlotte Bronte's romanticism and then try to prove to you that the male writers are the great romantics uh, and... We've certainly been copying them, but not forever. Women have done away, or are doing away, with romantic writing. I hope, I hope, I hope. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air next week at the same time, God willing. Till then, go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Circle on Friday, June 28th from 7 to 8 p.m. on KPFA 94.1 FM. Often a source of contention and public policy debate, immigration is an issue that hits at the core of the American experience. Immigration seems to fundamentally ask what does it mean to be a citizen? What is lost and gained culturally when a person leaves her native land? We will be discussing the role gender plays in migration, the differences between the first and second generation, assimilation versus integration the challenges of straddling two worlds, and the legal status of groups like refugees. While the circumstances for immigration always vary, the goal seems to be the same, the opportunity for a better life. Join us Friday, June 28th on Full Circle from 7 to 8 p.m. on KPFA 94.1 FM to learn more.